Today on The Black Goat, we talk about starting your first faculty job, what you should be ready for and what you should know about it, and a letter about working with an advisor who is hostile to open science. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava, and I'm with Alexa Tullett and Samin Vizier, as always. How are you guys doing today? Good. Good. Oh, you said that simultaneously. Well, it was simultaneous to me. This is always a mystery with <laughs> Skype. I can't tell, like, the timing. Just the recordings always work out, Alexa. Whatever you do to synchronize them sounds great, but... Uh, the recordings are always a little weird. Countless hours. I feel like Alexa and I should just talk at the same time all the time because people can't tell us apart anyway. I feel like it's good. Like it gives us plausible deniability if someone's like, hey, I heard you said this on your podcast. Like, no, nah, that was Alexa. <laughs> I, I totally do don't today, have that, do I? No, you yeah. don't have that. I wonder maybe, uh, um, yeah, should I like... Uh, I, I need to figure out a way that I can get that too, so I can attribute things to you. you guys. Can Maybe I should. Pretend it was one of us. All right, like I, I can just talk in a really high voice because this totally sounds like you yeah, guys, right? right? I think this so is higher than you? your voices are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So a lot, a lot's going on uh, right now with uh, editors uh, in God academic journals. I know. I know. What's what is up with those damn editors in chief of journals? I, I, I don't know any that I. No, uh, <laughs> that was people are listening who forgot that Samin's an editor of a journal. Like, what's he talking about? Anyway, um, yeah, no, there was this really kind of interesting, controversial, important thing that happened with a political science journal within the last week where and it was nuts, I have to say, crazy. when I saw this on Twitter, the editor in chief of the American Journal of Political Science, uh, a guy named William Jacoby, uh, posted on the journal website a letter a letter from the editor denying accusations of sexual harassment against him that uh, uh, apparently was like not approved by anybody but he was just like I am the editor of a journal so I mean I think it was on like the journal's website my defense the, there was crazy. some like it was like there was some really like loose connection to the journal or something but it was basically him saying like people have accused me of sexual harassment and I didn't do it mm-hmm. um, I feel really with, bad for all the decent people at Michigan State because <laughs> they're just like yeah, so many He's at Michigan State, um, and it's just like one crappy thing after another happening at Michigan I know. State. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it's gotta, it's gotta be demoralizing if you're faculty at Michigan State and just like a decent human being and watching everything. Do we know any of those? You. <laughs> <laughs> any people at Michigan State or any decent human beings at Michigan? State? <laughs> uh, Shout out to all our MSU Michigan. friends. Yeah, I feel uh, like yeah. we have like a really high density of friends at Michigan State. That's all true. Well, we've had a, we've had a podcast. A lot of people all at once. We've had a podcast guest from Michigan State, That's right, true. Rich Lucas, yep. and then yeah. Um, but no, and then, so we've also uh, heard and, and, you know, by the time we're, we record our podcasts a little bit ahead of when they come out. And so there, um, it's a little weird because there, there will be some, there will have been some conversation about this by the time this is coming out that we're, as we're recording it, not aware of. But um, Robert Sternberg, the editor of Perspectives on Psychological Science, is resigning from his post uh, not for sexual harassment reasons, but uh, 
seemingly actually we don't and, really know and, why exactly right yeah right now but, all we've heard is that he's resigning yeah but it's in the wake there, of yeah a few things right there there was um yeah there have been a number of things i think the a big recent one big recent one was a uh, an open letter signed by a couple hundred people myself included related to his sort of unclear inviting of uh, old white men to special issues over and over again and him inserting multiple of his own articles with many, many self citations Mm -hmm. into those special issues um, with unclear, but seemingly no like independent peer review of that. I, I know that like peer review for special issues itself is kind of a little different than the usual thing. But like when you're the editor do you even have like how uh, you know if you're like an editor doing a special journal in your own thing like anyway it, yeah you know so it's complicated so seriously but like it's at least yeah, but, it, you should at least try to take some steps to mitigate the yeah, potential conflict of interest right certainly a very strong appearance of conflict of interest and then just uh super recently um some really i think uh um important and interesting investigative work that nick brown did along with a commentary that james heathers published on his blog about text recycling in robert sternberg's articles not just at the journal but in other places as well where he was publishing articles that used quite substantial passages um, in some case you know a majority of an article's text was recycled from another article he had authored without attribution or any indication that this was a duplicate publishing of the same words. Mm-hmm. Are these, um, the like double publishing and self-citation stuff, is a lot of that recent or is that from earlier in his career? So it seems to, that's a really great question. Nick didn't do, Nick's blog post, which we will definitely link in the show notes if I remember to. So definitely, if, <laughs> <laughs> I, some, I feel like I say that sometimes when we record the podcast. I'll write I it forget, down. Right. Okay. Um, but uh, Nick didn't do a, like a systematic thing. It was mm-hmm. someone sort of tipped him off and he kind of spot checked. And then there were some other people on Twitter who also did some spot checking. And apparently it was pretty easy to, like, you d- he said it took him about 10 minutes to find the first instance of this. But nobody's gone through It's not from, like, whole... decades ago. It's from, like, yeah, well, yeah. maybe 10 years ago, something like that. But not, like... No, there, and there was one, one person on Twitter had posted something that was, like, within the last year. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is not, like, oh, he did this a long time ago. And that was, I think, one of the interesting things about um, James's companion commentary post as well as, you know, James talked about the COPE guidelines, and I went and looked at the COPE guidelines. And, and COPE itself, the, the Committee on Publication Ethics, which a lot of journals sort of uh, um, follow their guidelines, has talked about how text recycling and quote-unquote self-plagiarism, the norms are not entirely clear all the time and might have changed over time. But there are, there are certainly versions of it that are more, way more problematic than others. So, mm-hmm. like, COPE talks about how a method section there yeah. you know you might like describe something in the same right. way more than once and it might not be a big deal but uh you know substantive novel contributions are are more of an issue yeah i guess i'm sort of partly curious because i'm wondering if someone at his career stage actually benefits from having more 
citations well, and even even more articles like it's hard for me to really understand the motivation i don't think it's any different than at any other career stage it's you know what? some people measure themselves that way and and he so i've interacted with him quite a bit because i was an ae at perspectives for a short time after he took over mm-hmm. and he would in our email exchanges um he would tell me how many citations he had and how many publications he had so he, he knew exact he knew the exact number and he considered that a relevant qualification to like right. in our discussions about like whatever editorial practices and things yeah. like that um but so I guess i'm it, curious like is he right though because i think that like the number of publications that you have in the citation cap that you have matters a lot more earlier in your career than later. At his stage, it makes a difference between being in the top 10 or the top five, or, you know, like you can convince okay. yourself that it matters, yeah. right? Like it depends on your, I don't, well, I'm not, I don't I'm wanna, not like, arguing that he can't motives, convince himself. I'm just arguing that maybe objectively doesn't it doesn't matter. Really I don't know. Matter. I mean, if you're not, if you want to get into the next group that you're not in yet, right? Like, so a pre-tenure person wants to get tenure, but like he has his upward social comparison. Uh, I guess I just thought that the metric sort of changed. Like at this point, it would be like I don't know, lifetime achievement awards or something. Maybe yeah, but I think those he think I think some people think I don't know. I don't want to assume anything, but I think some people think that the way to get those is to be one of the most published yeah. and one of the most, and that might not be wrong. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there's an there's an interesting circularity here, which is that the special issue that prompted this recent open letter was where he invited people who'd had highly cited articles over the years to the special issue and an earlier special issue, which had also generated a lot of controversy was a special issue on eminence. And, you know, he takes the stand that citation counts and and those other metrics are indicators of eminence. So there's a sort of way in which like the, the, the things that people have found problematic are ways in which he's making the case that those practices ought to matter. And so I think for a lot of us, the frustration is the pattern. Like I think on its own, like doing a special issue on, uh, you know, authors reflecting on their most cited papers isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it's in the wake of a special issue on eminence that, got was so poorly received he had to do a second one and that's the context where i had a long email exchange with him about the purpose of the second one um and that led to the blog post that a group of us wrote about what perspectives were not being led into that second special issue and then yeah this so that so on the back back of all that the special issue plus the evidence that he's arguably in my view taking advantage of his position to you know, mm-hmm. publish a lot in his own journal and cite mm-hmm. himself a lot, and then, and then the fact that he's engaged in questionable authorship practices, which like puts him in a really bad position to judge other people's work. And like, mm-hmm. a lot of the self uh, like text recycling was in the context of review papers, and now he's editing a journal where he's meant to evaluate what's like a good review paper. I think this suggests his judgment about what's a good review paper is questionable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think also even even if the even even if you think that the publishing his own work and and the sort of excessive self citations aren't actually quote unquote helping him in a in a journal like Perspectives on Psychological Science, which is a very high impact journal that that it's a traditional journal. It's not like Plus One that publishes everything mm-hmm. that comes in. It, it only publishes a certain mon- amount that doing these special issues where you invite certain people and not others crowds out people who could have gotten in. So mm-hmm. that's, I think that's part of the impact yeah, is, no, sorry. I, I mean, is like, that it's not, yeah, it's not, it's not even, even if you believe that he's not doing any good for himself right. objectively. 
I wasn't he, really like trying to yeah. question the questionability of his decisions, I guess. Like, I mean, all of that matters is that he perceives that those things are important and right. is taking yeah. advantage of his position to right. get them. I was just curious what, like, whether it was sort of can. like a twisted situation where somebody was like, um, really like, yeah, I mean, having to resign from a journal um, for doing something that, like, ultimately would harm you in the end, but, or yeah. not harm you, but um, wouldn't help you that much yeah. in the end. Yeah, I don't um, think there is a, an answer about whether it helps you or not. I think it helps you if it's something you care about. If you're checking your H index every day, then having a higher H index, like, helps, you know, like, it's weird. Well, there, I think, but you know what I mean, right? No, I think, I mean, I know what you mean, but I think that we... I, I know a lot of senior people who are obsessed with their age index and who check their citations and so on. Like, I don't think it's mm -hmm. specific to junior people. I don't think it goes away. And I think it might even get worse for some mm -hmm. people. Like, if they're really striving to be in the very top group. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's yeah. true that the incentives are more external at the earlier stages of your career. But there's still that kind of weird metric focus even later. It doesn't go away necessarily. Mm -hmm. So I it's kind of shifting gears a little bit with this, but I, you know, I think that it's important for me, like one of the things that this highlights is just, again, the, the issue of, you know, unfiltered, unmoderated internet mm -hmm. commenters, whatever, are actually serving a really important purpose, right? So mm -hmm. this open letter was organized by people on social media. Um, Chris Crandall is the one that drafted it and, but it kind of came out of conversations on social media. Um, but, and especially like Nick Brown's work with this, um, and with Brian Wansink and other mm -hmm. people who've been, James Heathers and Jordan Anaya and Tim Vanderzee and other people who've been working on those issues, that these are making an important impact. And Bobby and Spellman's blog post, I think was And Bobby Spellman, yes. Oh yeah. Bobby, Bobby wrote a terrific blog post, which we should also link in the show <laughs> notes, um, to, to sort of an open letter to APS about why she's not renewing her membership, um, related to these issues. And I, I think it's just, it's, it's, you know, people are so caught up with like social media does bad things or whatever, but these are really important parts of the conversation yeah. and that 10 or 15 years ago this stuff would not have been happening and someone easily could have gotten away with yeah doing some of these things yeah i i'm really grateful for all of that and i have can i use our podcast as a confessional i, <laughs> I feel really i mean ex especially grateful for the people willing to speak out because i felt kind of stuck and a little bit hypocritical so i didn't sign the open letter my main reason for not signing the open letter is that I'm on the APS board and I wanted to take no chances that they wouldn't let me be involved in the response. And I was worried that if I signed the open letter, they would say that I have to like recuse myself from discussions about how to handle this situation because I took a side or something like that. And I, I don't know if that was the right call. I, you know, I wish, I wish I could have signed it and been sure that I would still get a voice in these discussions on the APS board. And maybe that's like paranoia on my part. Another thing I feel hypocritical about is I have a paper on uh, forthcoming and perspectives and I, I really wish I hadn't submitted it and it was invited and it was invited by Bob and it was before even the like, am I famous yet thing uh, went up that I was invited and accepted the invitation. Um, but I could have withdrawn and I, I feel guilty about that. So I feel like you know, I don't know. I admire the people who are willing to speak out because mm -hmm. I'm very conscious of all my excuses for not, even though, you know, I, I did at the blog post, I was part of that. So I, I haven't been completely silent and I did raise the issues with the APS board and ask that we put them on our agenda for our next meeting, not just 
perspectives, but all the issues that have come up recently on social media and in Bobby's post and so on. So I'm trying to do my part, but like, I'm also aware of all the costs of speaking out. And so it makes me extremely yeah. grateful for the people who are willing to right. bear those costs. Mm-hmm. Um, I also yeah. think like, you know, some people are like, Oh, like he's being targeted because he's an editor. And that's one place where I feel like I can say as editor-in-chief of a less important journal but still editor-in-chief that i think that's a perfectly legitimate reason to target people like go scrutinize editors-in-chief and you know like i yeah of course it makes me nervous if nick brown's gonna scrutinize me but he should and and yeah right like that's that's the, a very that's good category of people of to choose high visibility position yeah and like there are way worse ways to choose your targets than choosing people who have a lot of responsibility mm-hmm. yeah well, speaking of criticizing people yeah. with a lot of responsibility, <laughs> I was hoping um, you would make that connection. Yeah, should we should we read our letter? Because yeah. this, uh, I, I mean, as as preface, I should say when this one came in, holy shit, we were all fired up about it. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, I, I think um, and it, anyway, it came yeah. in right after our last episode, just for context. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. which will become obvious. Um, okay, so the letter begins, "Dear Goats." Your last podcast, A Blooming, Buzzing Confusion, spoke to me on several levels. You read the letter from a junior faculty about dealing with senior faculty who are resistant to open science. Either Alexa or Samin, sorry, can't tell you apart, (laughs) said something like, I'm not sure that there's always a huge threat to just saying what you think about these things. I think That that was Alexa. (laughs) (laughs) I may have to eat my words after. We'll get to that. Okay. Well, there is sometimes a huge threat. Uh, I'm a fourth year grad student. My department is openly anti-open science. Here's the most recent example. In discussing the results of three pre-registered studies, I was told that what I was doing was anti-science. Advisor went on to say that I was doing bad science and later told me the chair agreed. Advisor told me that if I were to pre-register my dissertation, it would not be acceptable and advisor doesn't want to hear about it again. In this discussion, advisor also said several other things, some of which advisor has said before. Here's some flavor phrases. Okay, well, just change the pre-registration. You can't change it? Then delete it. Or just ignore it. Don't tell anyone about it. You never know how to analyze the data until you look at the data. Power analyses don't matter. It's silly to think that you can plan to find an effect of a certain size with a power analysis. Effects shouldn't always replicate. Sometimes we find it, sometimes we don't. That's just how science works. The data are what the data are. You can't misrepresent it. There are many other examples that I can hardly believe. As a grad student, I'm struggling with how to conduct good research that I'm proud of while in a department that is actively vocal against open science. At this point, I'm just trying to finish without being failed. I am also trying to keep my mouth shut and I often feel as though I am keeping a dirty secret. I know there are others out there with these experiences, but I feel alone. How do I find support? Apparently I can't pre-register anything anymore, so should I just not publish anything else during my last year if I can't stand behind the work? Should I turn down authorship opportunities when I know the results won't replicate at the expense of a publication? I think the answer is yes, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Signed, The Bad Scientist. Um, so I think the one of the reasons this letter spoke to me is because this is not the first time I've heard from someone about this. And I've yeah. had many conversations with peers of my career stage and people more senior than me who talk about open science, quote unquote, bullies and blah, blah, blah. 
as if all of the bad, coercive, um, abusive behavior goes in one direction. And I am so grateful to the person who wrote this letter for telling their story because I have heard those stories and I've taken them in confidence and I've talked in general terms to yeah. people about, look, there, there is a lot of people being frankly coercive, frankly, uh, trying to induce what to me in this letter although i i can't say for sure because i wasn't there but some of these things just sound like ignorant misrepresentations and some of these things sound like borderline misconduct that this advisor is mm -hmm. asking this person to do again i it's hard to say without detail but um and and so i'm i'm very grateful to the person that wrote this letter for giving us one of these stories to read out loud on our podcast because as I said, and I know that you guys ha can say the same thing that I can. This is not the only person in this boat. I have heard from other people like this. I've talked directly to other people who have had very similar experiences. Um, this is not one advisor, one department. This is not one graduate student. This is not stories that we are making up. This shit happens and it is infuriating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I made the comment about maybe having to eat my words. And I will say, so actually even since our last episode came out, I've heard from from other people who have had similar experiences to the ones described in this email. Um, and so while I will say that like, I sort, of, I sort of stand by my claim that I do think that there is something productive about sort of like assuming the best about somebody. So giving people the benefit of the doubt when you first bring up these issues with them. Um, but I, I think that there is a cost to sort of underestimating how challenging the positions that graduate students um, in situations like this are in, um, and maybe sort of maybe I did underestimate that when we were talking last week because I think I think I did too. I, I need to to cop to that too because I mean I, you know last time it's so hard to give advice because you don't know, <laughs> maybe we should stop doing letters right <laughs> you know you don't know what someone's situation is and I mean I, I remember last on the last podcast trying to say well this only works for some people in some situations so I was trying to couch it but I and I think I was speaking to a pretty sunny optimistic situation and and not reflecting some yeah. of these kinds of situations um uh yeah and, yeah and, and, i mean i've yeah. heard a ton of them too and i think maybe that's what i was thinking of in the last episode when i was being more cynical than you guys and getting a little worked <laughs> up is yeah. i hate stuff like this and it's such bullshit and it's so wrong mm -hmm. and i think that i get frustrated if people assume this isn't happening or downplay this happening and like I think there's a difference between I don't know it's hard to say like I, I, we don't know the proportions we don't know how common it is and, and it's definitely worthwhile giving people a chance and like you know not assuming that they're going to be like this but I mean I don't know like so much of all this replicability stuff is about like let's all remember that everyone has good intentions let's all remember there's no shame in ever in like p-hacking sometimes or like making a mistake or whatever but you know what sometimes people don't have good intentions and sometimes people knowingly p-hack and ask others to p-hack and like it's not always innocent it's not always you know in good faith or because they didn't know or whatever and it puts other people in really difficult positions and it sucks and it pisses me off <laughs> i think you know the um i i have i think it's an interesting question to wonder what's 
the like mens rea of the people saying stuff like this. What does mens rea mean? At a certain mean? point, uh, um, sorry, it's a legal term for like uh, sort of the mental state, the kind of oh, guilty okay. mind of someone who, who commits a crime. And I think to, to some extent, I think there are people that say shit like this that actually think that they're in the right. Like they're not of, the yeah. like... And and that's and so, so I think most of them think extent, they're in the right, but they still yeah, know yeah. they're using their authority and their power instead of arguments. Like if you think you're in the right, make the arguments and have the discussion. Well, th- this is where this is where I, I find it sort of like I at a certain point, like I think it's an interesting question to wonder what's going on in their heads. But at a certain point, I'm just like fuck you. I don't care what you think. Mm-hmm. Like you, whether you've convinced yourself, senior academic abuse ad- advisor or not, that right. you're helping this person. I don't you like you you're in the wrong I don't know that they know that they're abusing their authority but fuck it they are yeah I I think they know they're abusing well whatever they ought to know they're abusing their authority I think they they believe they're doing it in the right in in the the student's best interest I absolutely believe they think it's in the student's best interest they think that people like us are corrupting influences and SIPs is a corrupting influence but they so they know they don't know that they're wrong or whatever they believe that they're not wrong but I think they know they're not using logic and reasoning and evidence to make their case They're, they're pulling rank so I guess what I would say is I, I don't care what they think. Right. They're wrong. Right. Like from a, from a, from well, they're a wrong, sort of like. Not, they're not just wrong on the substance. They're wrong in the process. Like that's what pisses me off. No, I don't I'm, I'm, they're wrong. They're wrong morally. I don't know if that's what the distinction is. Like I think, I think <laughs> the distinction is. I'm going full things. condemnation. Yeah. All right. Let's, can we help this person though? Let's, let's talk about <laughs> can we help this letter writer? Because um, this is where I think that this is where it gets really hard. Because the part of last week that I would say stand behind but I think I really find challenging to reconcile is that there's everybody who's in this awful kind of shitty position that they should never have to be in has to find the line between and this is what the letter writer is really struggling with and what I feel so bad for this person for you have to find the line between like making concessions to the reality of your shitty situation but not crossing a line of things that you can't stand behind mm. like not doing things that would be dishonest not doing things that would be misconduct not doing things mm-hmm. that would but compromise that's, even your that's vision a little bit idealistic values. right like okay you're a graduate student and your advisor says you can't pre-register like there no but that's what gonna... i'm saying is that you have to find you have to find your your red line while trying to get through graduate school and get through all of this so that, that's why it's such a your red line in many cases what are like? What are your alternatives? I mean, I so this person's Quit advisor, for example. Yeah, yeah but I that's mean, that's a big ass. I, I don't think I know. so. I don't I'm think not, this person. I'm just I don't think this person should quit graduate school. No, I'm not I saying think that. that. You, you just asked what are the alternatives. So I'm just trying yeah. to brainstorm. That's yeah, true. yeah. No, but I so so okay. So here's what I would say to this person. First of all, I would say probably don't pre-register because I mm. think. That's not a red line for most around, people, and it, it wouldn't be for that's me. That's not a red line for most people. But but I think that the discussion around pre-registration is evolving. But I, I think that there is, if if you do a pre-registration, and then you're going to be under pressure to claim that you, yeah. to lie about it, I think I would actually Don't say, it, like, yeah. not putting yourself in a position where you're going to have to lie about something Um yeah. Uh, either that or and if you have work that's already pre-registered that, you know, with collaborators who are like pushing you, you know, you could you could bury in a footnote. There was a pre-registration. This article reports analyses that were and were not pre-registered. 
And if that's like the least you can do to, to then you're being transparent. Someone can go look up the pre-registration, but maybe you're not irritating your yeah. And don't put like pre-registered advisor. study in your title and stuff like that. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. But I think the the larger point, I guess, is that this. Yeah, I think this person probably if they can't you know if we take quitting graduate school off the table which for some people it should be on the table but let's let's assume for this person that that's not um let's assume for this person that you know switching to another program or another maybe even switching to another advisor is not on the table although if they are they should should talk about i think that needs to be talked about more but okay Yeah. yeah yeah but yeah then then i would say you know do I think this person has to, this is where I don't know that I could give them like specific guidance, but I'd say you have to figure out what are your red lines um, and, and find people you can talk to yeah. who, who share your values, whether it's peers, whether it's mentors. Yeah. So the, you can go to somebody and you can say like, my advisor told me to do this. Is this a thing that I can like just do to get out of here or is this a thing that I should refuse to do Um, because I think it's really hard without giving get it without getting into like detail that's not in this letter for us for for me at least to say like here's absolutely you should never do this or you totally should do this or whatever right but as a larger strategy I think like finding people finding sounding boards because I think that's where people lose their moral anchoring is when they don't have anyone when they're getting gaslit by their right i think what's so hard about giving advice in this situation is that it's so easy to like downplay how much it erodes your soul to like let someone else make you do things that go against your sense of integrity for years like that's such a high cost and so that's why like i do think quitting grad school should be on the table i think transferring to another university should be on the table or if there's a lab at your own university then that's even easier but mm-hmm. i think people think of these things as like really really drastic moves but also this situation is really really drastic and anyone who tells you that it's not is gaslighting you or is like i don't know i mean this is like border yeah again it depends on the details but it's borderline like asking you to commit unethical conduct or misconduct and i don't know like that that's not to be taken lightly and i think i mean i've i've i remember like before the replicability crisis being in situations like this where i had to give advice or support to a friend who had an advisor who was abusive in other ways and i think it's so easy for people to think well this is part of grad school this is what it's like to have an advisor and blah blah and we normalize Mm -hmm. it and we make people feel crazy for like not being Mm -hmm. okay with having someone abuse them and like i think that is like I like the advice of um, trying to find somebody who you can talk to about it. I mean, it's even like more ideal if that person can be a senior person in your department. Um, but I guess I feel like the focus on like trying to find out with what you're morally okay and not okay with, I would I would take it like one step away from that and just say like have somebody else you can talk through these things with because. For one thing, like that person might be able to help you directly. Um, so they might be able to um, communicate with your advisor in some way, or they might be able to help you in some other way. Um, but also like the person who wrote this letter mentions that they feel like they're keeping a dirty secret and that they feel alone and they feel unsupported. And I feel like, yeah, finding someone that you can talk to about it at least addresses those things um, from the beginning. And then, yeah. I think that this is, I mean, the 
the finding finding what you're willing and not willing to do is not an intro not purely an introspective process like yeah, you need right. support yeah um and and that's part of gaslighting and that's right. part of yeah. part of it is I think trusting it's your, very your feelings about what's wrong right like letting yourself have that authority but but also i think recognize i think the opposite of that too which is recognizing that if you're surrounded by people who are telling you something um understanding that you might look back now or you might look back later on things that you did that you recognize after the fact you wish you hadn't done and don't feel don't feel guilty about i mean it's easy to say don't feel guilty right but that that's what these situations do to people right right? is that everyone around you is telling you to do something telling this is okay Mm -hmm. this is not and you start to believe it and then later on you feel like shit because you're like why did i go along with that Mm -hmm. and and so that's why i that that's why i I, i'm both saying like you have to find your line but you have to do that with other people who will support you and don't view it as a thing that you're just going to do on your own and that if you're a good person you'll be able to to draw that line and if you're not you know you're not or whatever because um that's what these situations do to people Mm -hmm. and i think it's important to keep in mind too that like you might have the feeling that like not pre-registering puts you in the camp of like bad researchers but it's important to recognize that still today the vast 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 majority of published papers in psychology are not pre-registered so you're not like people aren't going to jump on you or like criticize you or chalk like put you in the category of bad researcher for not being perfect so i think sometimes we can lose sight of that in in our bubble i mean this person is in a different bubble in their department but like it can feel like everyone's going to jump on you but if you look at the world actually like I think most of the papers I see getting criticized pretty heavily. It's not just that they didn't do the newest best practices. It's worse than that. Like, I think if you're just doing the best you can under the status quo, you're probably going to be okay. And, you know, you can also demonstrate your commitment to open science or, you know, rigorous practices in other ways. It's not your co-authored papers are not the only way you have. So you can, yeah, like often in job applications, you have a chance to express those things. You can, um, I don't know. I guess that's a good question. Like, how else could you signal that? I mean, I think most people will take you at your word if you say that those things are important to you and you couldn't do them mm-hmm. in graduate school. Um, so I think yeah. reaching out to people who you want to yeah. Again, reaching work out to people is one way. So, like, there's a chance that you could collaborate with other people in your department and do things differently in those projects. But also you could... Um, if you're talking to somebody who could potentially write you a letter of recommendation, then they can vouch for your investment in these things mm-hmm. um yeah and i think to to what you know to the issue of like yeah finding people who can give you substantive input because i think there there's a and i i, I don't want to speak to what the letter writers where the letter writer specifically is at so so i'm probably going beyond that but like there i think there's a there's a simplistic view that someone I could imagine someone take i don't think many people do this in actuality right but you could imagine someone who like first encounters these things who sort of has a fairly straightforward, like, okay, in order to do good research, you have to do X, Y, Z. And and then people who are actually doing these things know that they're more complicated. They know that you don't always pre-register everything, that pre-registrations are complex, and that, uh, you know, um, anyway, yeah, that, that it's like a more intellectually engaged thing. And, and so having, and that there's lots of ways to do research with integrity, and that doing research with integrity 
is a process of ongoing intellectual engagement. It's not just a list of practices that you either do or don't do. And that's where being isolated like this person is so hard because it would be like if you were the only person doing research on a particular topic and you had nobody else to talk to about the theory or the methods, right? And it would be like, oh, I don't, you know, I have to figure this out from textbooks or whatever. Um, you know, doing good open science practices, replicable science is a big part of that is having colleagues, both for the sort of support that this person's not getting on a like integrity level, but also just intellectually, like having people that you can bounce ideas off of and say like, does this really need to be pre-registered or does this, you know, how can I go about sharing this data in a sort of nuanced way that doesn't you know, compromise my subjects, identities, or like all these things are actually really complicated mm-hmm. to do in a lot of situations, not always, but a lot of them. Um, and, and so I can imagine someone who's isolated who just feels like, oh, there's this whole conversation going on about how to do research well, and I can't do any of it. Um, and, and not even having access to like collaboration and conversations about how to do it in their own work. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's also where I would say, like, don't beat yourself up if you're not pre-registering yet. Most people still aren't. Or if you're, you know, not doing this or that, like, you know, and that's where, like, talking to people about, like, what are the things that I'll be able to look back in five or ten years and say, okay, I grew past those, but I still can, you know, feel good about that work versus things that you would regret later. Mm -hmm. And I don't think people can, I don't think someone that's that's isolated can figure that out on their own. Mm Yeah. yeah. Well, we should we should probably move on. Yeah. Move on. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I yeah, I think we all knew this letter was mm-hmm. going to fire us up. Um, well, th- uh, thank you to the person again. I, I'm I'm always grateful to people that write us letters, but I'm I'm especially grateful to this mm-hmm. person because I think it it took a lot of courage for someone this isolated to to write to us. And I think, uh, as I said. I've had confidential conversations, and I know you guys have as well. And it, it it's really valuable to have someone who's willing to um, to write down their story and yeah. send it to us. So thank you. Um, and if you're listening and you want to send us a letter about anything at all, we're <laughs> letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. We're on Twitter at blackgoatpod. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash blackgoatpod, et cetera. Cool. So let's talk about our main topic for the day. Yeah. which is being a new faculty member. So we've done episodes. We did an episode on the job market. We did an episode on like negotiating and all that. And so we're kind of following you through your career this year. And I have to say, I'm, I'm super excited because my department has five new assistant professors coming in. Oh, wow. uh, we, we had a, a blockbuster year hiring and recruiting. We, we had three positions. We had a couple spousal hires that we were able to do successfully, blah, blah, blah. So like, hi to everybody uh, mm-hmm. coming to my department. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, no, it's a super exciting thing. And so this, uh, um, so we wanted to talk about your first, getting ready for your first faculty job. And I think, uh, you know, a good, maybe a good place to, to start, not necessarily at the beginning, but I think something that's probably one of the biggest issues is, it's kind of, it's a little bit thematically related, although hopefully in a more positive way to what we were just talking about, but like, Finding support, finding mentorship, I think is one of the biggest things that people, you know, because you'll get plenty of advice from your old advisors about like, you know, where to order your 
psychophys mm-hmm. equipment from or whatever. And I guess we could talk about that. Um, Samin hates. Who is it that you hate again? What? James Long or no? Wasn't there some? <laughs> oh, Noldis. You hate Noldis. Oh. Yeah, Samin hates Noldis. But uh, uh, instead of talking about how Samin hates, Samin hates is, a, is a very long podcast topic. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have time for that. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, like so. I I think the one of the things almost everybody starting a new fa- I shouldn't say almost everybody. A lot of people starting new faculty jobs are physically moving to a new city, location, etc. Even if you're not you're changing the circles of people you're involved in you're at this new stage new identity and i think like there's a lot of new shit that comes at you that you're just gonna have to deal with and having those people and having mentors and i don't know do you guys have like what what kind of mentorship did you guys have when you started your first faculty job i had some mean <laughs> and actually, no, I mean, of course, I had people here too, but not in any kind of formal capacity. And I do think that some schools do that. Do you guys do that, uh, Sanjay? Do you have like um, a more senior faculty mentor to junior faculty? So we're, yeah, we've, we've done that and, it, and we're actually trying to beef up our mentorship. That's something we've been talking a lot about because mm-hmm. we, we felt like it hasn't been enough. So we would assign a more senior person to a more junior person and they'd maybe get together once in a while or something. But we're, we're trying now to do more within the department, more mentorship that's kind of not, not just one-on-one because I think the you know, you're kind of limited to the strengths and weaknesses of that one person and you may not click with them and, and they aren't going to be able to support you with everything you need. And so we're going to start doing a thing where our junior faculty are going to have like meetings and lunches with one or two or three senior faculty about a particular topic so that it's more kind of like, oh, you want like, let's do a, you know, and, and the, we're going to let the junior faculty kind of drive that agenda to a large Mm -hmm. extent based around what they want to know about so if they want to do a thing on grants we get some people that have a lot of experience with Mm -hmm. NIH and NSF and with writing grants and can but I think like when I think of mentoring I think of more like people to ask your embarrassing questions to and things like that Mm -hmm. and when I started my first job was at WashU and we had formal mentors but I actually pretty quickly those were not the people I was going to so like it takes a little while to figure out who are the people you feel comfortable asking your embarrassing questions to Um, and so I figured that out after you know however much time a year or maybe more I think it took more than a year before I found the people that I was willing to be like (laughs) yeah some of my embarrassing questions were pretty embarrassing Um, tell us about your embarrassing questions that sounds fun I think I already told I I can remember some um what are yours <laughs> i think the, the one i can remember i think i already told on the podcast i basically well uh this isn't so much a specific embarrassing question it's just like an embarrassing giant gap in my knowledge which was that like i didn't know about what advising undergraduates was hmm. so like in the fall of my first semester here i was like assigned undergraduate advisees and like the word advising to me only meant Like, you advise your graduate students. And I'm not even Mm -hmm. sure that advising existed where I went to college. And so, like, I was, I had all of these, like, undergraduates coming into my office in these meetings to be advised (laughs) on, like, what classes they should take. And I, like, basically I didn't have any idea what I was supposed to be doing in this meeting. Mm -hmm. Like, um, like, later I learned more about, like, the online system that we use to advise people and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. But 
Um, in the beginning, I just didn't even know that that existed. So you, you needed advising on advice. Yeah. Definitely. One yeah. thing that took me a long time to figure out is that at WashU, the classes are listed as starting on the hour, but they actually start seven minutes after the hour. Oh. And it was weeks of me yelling at my students for being <laughs> late to class before they had the guts to tell me. And no one told me this rule, and it wasn't written anywhere. So, yeah, it's really hard to anticipate the unknown unknowns. Um, I think that this is this is where... I think that it's so common that people just don't realize what the new person doesn't realize. Yeah. This is such so a repeated thing. You have to eventually, like, like, I think before you really know who you can trust, you have to start opening up to people. And that's super scary. Like, that's yeah. so scary that you just have to, like, choose somebody and be like, you seem sane. I'm going to show you all my weaknesses. And, like, yeah. so I think that's one of the hardest things about being a new professor. And I think you just have to kind of go with your gut. I mean, if your department puts you with mentors and you feel comfortable with them then those are a good place to start but mm -hmm. if you don't feel comfortable with them it's okay to find your own informal mentors mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And, it's, and it's okay for nice those to, to change somebody at a different place because then like you know they're sort of like removed they're you know they're not your senior colleague but it's also nice to have somebody at the place where you work because yeah. there are some just like institution specific things yeah. that you might want to ask about well, and that, that's the thing that people often, it's amazing sometimes people just don't realize that certain things don't work the same everywhere. So they think yeah. like, oh, you know, like, you know how a subject pool works or you know how mm -hmm. advising works. Right, like right. what what your responsibilities are in un advising undergraduates varies massively between mm -hmm. institutions and it's also, super specific. And they're like and, official. And people just assume like that's, that's how it works or, you know, yeah. And the official rules versus the informal rules. Like I remember when I moved to Davis, at one point I had like put an auto reply because I was traveling and I got a resp I some mass email went out to the department and the staff person who sent the email wrote me back and said like you didn't fill out the paperwork saying you would be traveling. And luckily I was like a more senior faculty by then and I'd have enough experience to be like, that's probably not a rule that people actually follow. Like I wasn't yeah. teaching that term. Like I don't have to fill out paperwork when I travel. So I checked with yeah. some other faculty. I was like, do you fill out paperwork when you travel and you're not gonna like miss a class or whatever? And everyone was like, no. So my lesson was stop using auto replies. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. now I either don't use one or I use a very vague one that says I'm un unable to respond to email or something like that. Um, but I, I think, think your, you know, uh, your auto reply is, is better than that, actually. I think it's like, I will be, be even slower, slower than usual in responding to But yeah, so things like that. Like, I think if I had been a first year assistant professor, I'd been like, oh, no, I need to fill out paperwork mm -hmm. every single time I leave campus or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's where, like, and I, I've said this before, like thinking of mentorship like a buffet rather than like one course or whatever. So having lots of different people for different things. Mm -hmm. And so that's where you need local people who know how things work. And, and that's where also like having someone who you, you know, the people you go to with those kind of questions might be like a year or two older than mm -hmm. you or ahead of you career wise, right? Like if you're a brand mm -hmm. new assistant professor, um, having connections with the other assistant professors are super important. And like in our department, they all get together regularly, the, the pre-tenure people, and they have their own support network. Because that's the sort of thing, like, you might feel weird, especially if it's a, like, do I have to follow this rule question, mm -hmm. right? You, like, you might feel weird going to some people with a, like, do I actually have to follow this mm -hmm. rule question? But there might be other people who would be totally... Yeah, or, like, if you have someone, a senior colleague who's bothering you, and then you're, like, who can I tell? Who are their mm -hmm. friends, and who can I yeah. tell? So I had that yeah. in my first job, and luckily there were lots of really, really supportive people, who, and... They like yeah. I mean, at WashU, the mentoring was amazing. So like, if I had somebody bothering me, like I didn't have to deal with it myself. And I think that's really important. A good department will step in 
if there's someone like acting unprofessional or just whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. So don't assume that you have to deal with all that yourself. Like hopefully you yeah. have people who are willing to fight some of your fights for you. Mm-hmm. And also and like I a think nice also, source uh, can be people who start at the same time as you as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, so maybe they don't necessarily know more than you, but sometimes they might have learned things that you haven't learned yet. And there are at the same stage as you. So like I, I relied a lot on like the, um, two people who started at the same time as me, Andrea and Chris. Um, and that was, a, that's a big deal. Yeah, I didn't yeah. have that. And I think having people, I mean, this is both mentorship and support, having people not at your institution. So if you're, m- most people are lucky enough to like have, I shouldn't say most, a lot of people, pro- hopefully most people are lucky enough to have like supportive, constructive relationships with their former advisors, grad school and maybe postdoc and mm-hmm. whatever. So, you know, knowing that you can talk to those people if you can, but having, you know, other, just making sure you have people for those kind of reality checks. So, for example, if something's happening and you don't have anyone you can talk about at your institution, you're like, is this just like how things are supposed to work or should I not be putting up with this? Mm-hmm. Um, having people who can, who can say to you, who, you, who you feel like you can get an answer from and, and yeah. who can sort of be there for you. Um, and having having your your peers as well um, at other institutions can be can be really valuable, I think. Mm-hmm. One thing I found really interesting about becoming a professor, and I was relatively young when I got my first job, was like all of a sudden, like if you want to get to know your colleagues, you have to have like dinner parties and wine, and like you can't. I mean, you can't just like say, "Hey, do you want to come over and order pizza?" Or at least I felt that way. And that was, like, the way I knew how to, like, become friends with people. So I felt pretty alienated just because of, like, Mm -hmm. there was an age difference between me and most of my colleagues. Like, a lot of my colleagues were my parents' age. And there was a lifestyle Mm -hmm. difference. And, like, just things that were the way I hung out with people and bonded with people in the past felt kind of inappropriate. or Yeah, right. um, That was really hard. And I don't know what the solution to that is other than, like, I found people in other departments who were more like me in terms of lifestyle. And that helped a lot. Um but I think that's a big yeah. jarring thing. Like you go from having mostly peers yeah. who are your age. If you're traditional grad student age, you go from having mostly peers who are your age to all of a sudden having generational gaps between you and your colleagues, which comes with also like differences about gender roles and other things. Right. Um, and you also often have more in common with, like I felt this way, have more in common with the graduate students than you do with the faculty sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a very strange dynamic, I feel. But, like, the grad students don't see you as, like, just an older grad student. They see you as, like, a totally... Yeah, I had both. I had that in a good... In some ways, and then I also had some grad students who saw me as less... Less of an authority figure than my colleagues. Um, So I had to struggle a little bit with that. that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's let's talk about graduate students, because I think that's a... That, that is an important topic is for people who are go- starting their job at a place that has graduate students. Um, I mean, I think one of, one of the things that I noticed when I was a graduate student, when new faculty came, and then I kind of noticed as a new faculty member, and then I see it happen to other people, is you, so you show up and you're, you're new, you're different from everybody else, you're often younger than everybody else, so you're closer in age, and... and um, and people are excited about your work and whatever. And so you'll be approached by graduate students who some of whom might be just interested in your work and what you do, some of whom might want to come work with you. Um, and there's and that can be really complicated because 
some of the what I've observed is that some of those students that approach the new faculty member are the like really like interesting they're interested in what you do but they're also like you know they're just like open-minded and curious Mm -hmm. and they're they're they got a lot going on and they're like oh great another person to collaborate but then there's also the like I I always think of like the island of broken toys like the the graduate students who are and this sort of depends on how a department works like when I was in graduate school you didn't even have to be in a lab you could like be in the program and just sort of be adrift and the graduate students who like um, didn't have an advisor because for various mm-hmm. reasons, sometimes because of the advisor, sometimes because of them. And, but so people would sort of like gl- glom on to the new person mm-hmm. um, who maybe they should sort of be careful about whether they start working with this person because mm-hmm. this person was in the program and kind of dysfunctional or this whatever. Is, this is related to another phenomenon that happens when you become a faculty. At least I've observed it both when I was a grad student, I observed it in faculty and then I observed it myself, which is, something happens in your brain when you become a faculty where you stop being able to read grad students accurately. So like you can't <laughs> totally. tell when someone's kissing your ass. You can't tell when someone's crazy. You're like, oh yeah, these seem wonderful. And all the other grad students are like, what the hell are you talking about? And I remember yeah. that when I was a grad student, like the professors being like, this new person seems great. And everyone else is like, that person is psycho. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And like, and I notice, I know that now about myself that like, I don't know what grad students are thinking and I can't read them and I can't tell when they're like putting me on and I can't tell when they have really good intentions when they have bad intentions. Mm-hmm. So it makes it super hard to know how to approach grad students who want to transfer to your lab or who want to do a side project with you, but they haven't been productive with their advisor. Is that their advisor? Is that them? Is that, I just don't trust my judgment anymore. And I find like I need yeah. so much information and, and yeah. outside corroboration before I feel confident in my read of the situation. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and on top of that, there can be politics too, yeah. right? So, so there's also the awesome graduate student who has a shitty advisor right. who wants to come work with you, yeah. but it's gonna like start up drama, right. it, you know, that you're you, you might still do it, but you should know what you're getting into. Mm-hmm. And I so that's where like having people that you trust and can talk to can be really important. Someone could say like, okay, yeah, this grad student's awesome, but their advisor is nuts, and and you know, you should know what you're getting into. I think there's a systematic difference between like what graduate students can recognize about incoming or current graduate students and what faculty can recognize about them. Like there are just, so I always um, weigh my grad students' opinions pretty heavily when I'm interviewing new grad students um, because people are just like, they're just really different around other graduate students than they are around faculty. And I think most people are smart enough to know how to appeal to um, faculty members when they're interviewing. Yeah. But not everybody is smart enough to like keep that up around graduate students or... Yeah. yeah. When, I be- when I was an assistant professor, one of the most valuable sources of uh, like help, advice that I had was my friends who were still graduate students because like graduate students would do things and I would be like, what are they thinking? Like I can't understand their behavior. And so then I would call my friends who are still grad students and I'd be like, my grad student did this or like this grad student did this. Mm-hmm. Like, what does that mean? And I'd be like, Oh, it just means that they're scared to tell you that blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, mm-hmm. Oh, and it's amazing yeah. how quickly I lost the ability to perspective take and to like yeah, interpret so their behavior accurately. So mm-hmm. yeah, it happens really, really fast and it's scary. And yeah. Yeah. How do you guys feel about so, taking graduate students in your first year? Um, I did that and I feel like, like someone who started when you started. Yeah. And I felt like I 
poor like Brett suffered as a result because I was like I'm sure terrible I didn't know what I was doing and in my job at all and then also as an advisor but then I'm not sure if it would have been better if I had taken him in the second year they're just might mm. it just might suck for the first person sure. <laughs> right that's like my uh, Elliot Berkman I might have mentioned this on the podcast before he, ha- he calls it the pancake theory of graduate students oh, like when you make pancakes hilarious. the first pancake always like turns out <laughs> sloppy hey whatever, I was my advisor's <laughs> first grad student what are you saying about me <laughs> yeah I was but uh, uh, well, I'm, I'm having I'm having dinner in an hour with my first graduate student uh, mm-hmm. who's uh, uh, survived me so yeah. uh, I guess that's that's something yeah. but um uh yeah no uh um i i think that i think yeah i think there's two issues right i think there's just how do you manage your first graduate student whenever they come in and then there's the kind of when should you take them um i didn't take graduate students my first year and i i think i was kind of glad because i had plenty to do like i was setting up my lab i ended up actually because i didn't take graduate students my first year i was working directly with my undergraduate RAs much more intensively than I tend to do now because there's like a layer between us. And I, um, I worked with some amazing undergraduates and just, I now don't have other than like honor students sometimes, but I don't have that much chance to like work closely with undergraduates as much as intensively anymore. So that was kind of cool. Um, and, but also like I was prepping all of my classes Mm -hmm. for the first time. That was a ton of work. There were just like things about being a first year, assistant professor and and plus I had like data up the wazoo that I brought with me and so it's not like I needed to be generating brand new data right away mm-hmm. um which would be if that had been different that might have been a different the other thing is like me. the during the interview process and stuff you're not there yet so I feel like that would be weird to even have to choose somebody when you don't really know what the department is like and so you don't right like I feel like I didn't take a student until I'd already been there a year so I recruited during my first year and my first student started my second year and at least then I could like I don't know be part of the recruitment as part of the department I feel like that helped and yeah I think I would have been super overwhelmed if I had a student starting when I started and I was responsible for them so I think it was nice my first year to be able to feel like I'm the one on the receiving end of help almost in all of my relationships at that university. Um, and I wasn't really responsible for anybody yet other than the students in my classes. Um, yeah. That was nice. So I, I like that, but I haven't had the opposite, so I don't know for sure. But I would, I would recommend waiting a year, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And I think there's, so this, I, I think another thing we wanted to talk about is sort of starting a lab. And this relates to that, um, but, you know, there's other issues as well. So that, you know, there's starting a lab, quote unquote, in terms of like buying equipment and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, I think more organizationally speaking, like I think that's a, there's a lot of really important decisions to think about in your first year. So do you want a big lab or a small lab? Um, and you're not going to like start big right away. But what are you building toward? Do you want to have lab meetings or not? And if you have lab meetings, who comes to them? You know, undergrads, mm-hmm. only graduate students. Um, Are your lab meetings for like work, you know, so some, I know some people do lab meetings where it's like, we all get together in a room and we actually like work on projects. We, we do logistics, we organize things and other people, lab meetings are more social or they're more, we discuss an article or something like that, or, Mm -hmm. you know, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of those kind of decisions and, and I don't know that there's one right answer to any of those, but I think you know what kind of and also in a more diffuse sense like 
what kind of lab culture as well as one-on-one what kind of relationships do you want to have with your students like Mm -hmm. do you want to be the lab that you know goes out for a beer once in a while do you want to be the lab that's very formal and business-like um yeah Yeah, so just to put like one thing out there i used to have lab meetings with my grad students and then i stopped so now the only kind of lab meeting we have is the one for the undergrads so like the grad students and lab manager kind of run it i'm there but i just participate you know uh as a participant and i don't have lab meetings where i'm running it and it's me and my grad students and for me it's just i think it's a personality thing i just i always hated the dynamics in those meetings i didn't like having to be responsible Mm -hmm. for those dynamics and for like putting everyone at ease and not having competition among the grad students and all the different things that could come up when you have a group of like Mm -hmm. three or four grad students and and they're all looking at you and so i hated that and the day that i stopped doing that my life got so much better but like i don't know any other people who just don't do lab meetings and i think some people like i didn't think it was an option until i just got to my wits end and i was like i'm just not going to do it and i have only one-on-one meetings with my grad students and then the the big meeting with the undergrads i'll i'll give the the opposite perspective with maybe like an underlying theme which is that i do the opposite kinds of lab meetings so i have lab meetings with my graduate students and there are a couple of graduate students from other labs and then sometimes some senior undergraduate students so if i have like an honor student i usually give them the option of coming so people who are pretty invested in the lab and that's like one of my favorite aspects of my job and like you were you were making distinctions between different kinds of lab meetings sanjay so mine is like a the kind where we're having a beer and b like we're usually talking about something like more like general and like we're having like an intellectual discussion but it's not really work like it's like we'll talk about an article or maybe somebody will like you know discuss like a methodological choice and we'll discuss that but like that's one of my favorite things because and this is something that like I think I sort of got from um from my advisor Mickey it was just that you know like it was basically why I think one of the nice things about our jobs is that we get to have um like fun intellectual conversations with people who are interested in talking about the same things that we are and that's where I feel that but I really didn't like the kinds of like lab meetings that are um with all of the undergraduates like for me there are like some undergraduates who are very invested and interested and some who just like I felt like I was like dragging them and I I did feel like this weird dynamic where I was supposed to be like simulating this discussion between people who didn't want to be there and so I haven't completely stopped having those but I basically um I have like sort of like one organizational one a semester um and that was a big relief to me was to just like decide that um that I wasn't going to do that anymore yeah I think it really is a personality thing because if I had you leading my lab meetings I would love them too (laughs) and so like for me like the fun intellectual discussions I have they're so much I'm so much better at them one-on-one than I am in a group where there's status differences and, and it's on me to navigate those and smooth those over like I'm just not good at putting people at ease I'm not good at like being the the adult in the room um with a group of people and I think I'm pretty good at it one-on-one. Like, I think I'm pretty good at getting my grad students to, like, open up and have, like, mm-hmm. good conversations and stuff one-on-one. But, yeah, and I could totally see how you would be really good at that in a group. And Mickey, too. Yeah, good at that. So what about, what about research, like, topics and research programs? <laughs> so I think the, you know, one, one thing that's, I think, really important to have lots of conversations with lots of people, and you might have already done this when you were interviewing, but is to to find out what your department's expectations are, because 
so I know in my department, it used to be almost an explicit norm, and it's still discussed a lot in tenure and promotion cases, like University of Oregon data, quote unquote. Like the, it's really important that you have uh, publications out of your lab at the university. Um, and so that that's like a consideration, right? Is, is you know, they, they wanna see, and it's a little bit more, it's gotten a little bit more flexible because like how people work has changed a bit over the years. But, um, you know, so that's the thing to find out, like how, how, how are, how is your department going to view one thing? These are not exactly the same, but they're related. One is data generated from your lab at your new job. And then the other is more a sort of intellectual issue of like independence versus not. So a big issue for a lot of people starting a new job is they still have collaborations with their former advisors and in some departments the norm is like you stop as soon as you show up and and the expectation is like those don't count at all right Mm -hmm. and in other departments it's like no that's great like as long as you've got some independent stuff too like it's great to keep going so that these kinds of things should guide those decisions for sure you need to know and you need to talk to multiple people because you will get idiosyncratic views from some people and and people will have different opinions in your department I would look for things that there's consensus about where you're getting the same message from multiple people and it's a long-standing rule. So like you can see that the people who've gone up for tenure for the last, you know, four or five years have had the same standards because other things that are idiosyncratic to a person or to a time could change by the time you go up for tenure. So I think that I would say people tend to talk as if you have to be really strategic, but I think the things that you really have to be strategic about are the things that are very clear messages that are longstanding norms in your department that everyone is telling you the same message, then that should factor into your decision. But things that are just like one person's opinion who happens to be vice chair right now, but is not going to be in two years or whatever, like I wouldn't bend over backwards to meet their preferences if you're not getting consensus or like evidence that that's a longstanding thing. And in general, like I don't, think you should sacrifice too much for strategy again except these things that you're getting a really clear message um, because it's also your career and you need to be happy you need to be doing something you like so I would I would weigh you know the advice you get against like what you want your job to look like and make concessions when there's like very clear norms um, but also weigh your preferences and what you want to get out of your job as well mm-hmm. yeah. yeah I think I mean this is like this is just giving like an idiosyncratic example um and it's just anecdotal but when i started here i was hired as a psychophysiologist essentially and i completely changed my research program um and i there were times when i was like really worried that people were going to be like they were going to find out that i changed this and that i hadn't told them and they would be like really upset that i didn't do what they expected of me when i started um, and, uh, hopefully I, yeah, now I can like confess this, but like, um, nobody has ever expressed any concern about that whatsoever. And, um, and yeah, but you got tenure. So we know, so it, it counts. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess my, my point not, is Alexa's sort of not like just saying should, that <laughs> you should try to push the, you should, you should try it's, to do what you want to do. Yeah. If something's um, really important to you, there's probably yeah. a way to make it work. Yeah. Like if, if continuing to work. And with I think that goes, really that goes both you. in the direction. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, I think cool. we're having Skype issues. So let's talk about <laughs> teaching. We're, uh, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, what uh, what kinds of things, so a lot of people who are in their first faculty job are going to be teaching for the first time, and or they might have, they might have some teaching experience, but like, yeah, what, what kinds of things, what kinds of things surprised you guys about teaching when you f- did it for the first time in oh your God, first faculty job? I was like, I didn't know anything about teaching. Um, so I had never taken any kind of pedagogy class. I taught... A half of a um, seminar class so basically I'd like led discussion in a class for like a few lectures um, so I really like that was a big a large amount of work for me was adjusting to teaching and I really feel like I didn't know what I was doing um, yeah I mean I could go on and on and on about the specifics but I was just unprepared that's my answer Yeah, I, I think one of the things that I learned, so I started off teaching intro to psych, um, and I was, which is a really large class at U of O, one of the things I learned early on that I didn't anticipate, uh, I had done a little bit of teaching in grad school, but was how, in a big class, how important organization is, like, and, and structure and just have the class having like super clear crystal clear structure and requirements. Um, so I was all, I was all excited. Yeah, I know. Like I was all excited about like the content and that that's super exciting and that's a lot of fun. But one of the things I realized is my life got so much easier once I like, if the requirements are really straightforward and logical, if the, the deadlines are regular um, and, and everything's announced and all this shit is just like, it, it makes the students at ease because they know what's going on. It makes you not have to respond to a million emails. That was something that I like, didn't anticipate being as important as it was. Mm-hmm. Like I knew, I knew how I, I anticipated that I'd have to learn how to stand in front of a class and deliver a lecture without saying, um, a million times and all that kind of thing. But I, I think learning sort of learning some of that, those kinds of things. And then learning how to integrate things from, yeah, good pedagogy about like, you know, how do students remember things and, you know, how to present things and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think working out like how to have authority without being a jerk. And like, for me, that was like, like I I said, you know, when I started teaching, I think I was 26 when I started my job at WashU. Mm -hmm. And so I expected to have to like establish my authority and blah, blah, blah. But little did I know it was the opposite. Like they were too scared to tell me that class yes. didn't start for seven minutes for like yeah. two or three <laughs> weeks. Um, yeah. So that was kind of a wake up call of like, I might be like not that much older than them and I might feel like an imposter and whatever, but I'm definitely the authority figure in their eyes. Yeah. And, you know, there are times when that boundary gets pushed and students try to take advantage or whatever. But but I went into it thinking that would be the main challenge when in fact there was just as much of the opposite of like trying to be approachable despite my age and everything else um I had exactly the same experience like I at first I think maybe this is common advice for that is received by young female faculty members but I think basically a lot of people warned me that I would have a hard time being taken seriously and so I tried to be serious (laughs) and it just did not come naturally to me at all um and then I very quickly gave up on trying to be serious and I think like it made my interactions with my students much smoother and it made 
like it took me less time to write emails because I d couldn't I didn't have to try to figure out how to be Sound nice like without using yeah. exclamation points and smiley faces. <laughs> I just used them. Yeah. It was fine. Um, and I yeah, I had the same experience of like really having to work harder to get them to like relax around me than mm -hmm. having to work hard to earn and their respect. And it's kind of the same as with grad students. Like it's really hard to tell when someone's trying to take advantage of you when they're not. And so it's, mm -hmm. it's like, it's a, very exhausting to navigate that. Like if someone asks for an extension and they have like a mediocre excuse, then should you give it to them or should you not? And mm -hmm. I find that really exhausting. Like, should I err on the side of letting somebody get away with something that might not be fair to the other students? Or should I err on the side of being really strict and right. applying the rules equally to everybody? even if someone has a yeah. legitimate reason. And I've, I've changed that over the years and tried different things. And I actually found that yeah. WashU and UC Davis were pretty different in terms of how I could approach that. But mm -hmm. that's, I mean, I think a yeah. lot of the adjustment the first year is these little things that you can't quantify, right? It's not like, it doesn't go on your CV. It's not a service thing that you do or whatever. Yeah, it's like right. trying to understand what's going on and what people's intentions are and who's trustworthy and all of that stuff. And it's so exhausting. So I would, one thing I think my takeaway is like, give yourself a break. Like that first year is going to be so hard and so exhausting. Even if it goes well, it's going to be exhausting and it's going to be yeah. unproductive relative to other times in your career. And you know, it's okay. Like it's normal to panic and feel like you're not getting enough done. And this is going to last forever. And it's not just a one year thing, but like I would seriously entertain the possibility that it is just a one or maybe one and a half or two year thing. But yeah, there's there's a transition that's extremely costly in terms of time and energy and everything mm -hmm. yeah yep well cool maybe we should end on that mm -hmm. um end on like cut yourself some slack and yeah. it can mm -hmm. it can be exhausting but hopefully awesome as well let's let's hope it is uh for everyone listening um cool well thanks guys uh this was fun and uh yeah, thank you everyone for listening to The Black Goat, and we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>